0: I've been trying to remember whether it was 2008 or 2009. I honestly can't remember. But at the time, I was working at the First Baptist Church of Edmond, Oklahoma. Uh, That was the church that I served before I came to New Spring. And the pastor at that church decided to send me to a ministry conference. And I hadn't traveled much work before, and maybe I could call myself not a very experienced traveler at that uh, point. I traveled some with my dad uh, when I was a teenager when he was going around and speaking, but I wasn't a terribly experienced traveler at this point. I did know that I loved to fly, and so the fact that they were sending me on this trip where I was going to fly to this destination sounded great. And I was looking forward to it. So I get on the first leg of that flight, and I get into my layover, and it was actually kind of a long layover. I can't remember, two or three hours, something like that. And so I do what everybody normally does. You get off the plane, you know, I, I dial my wife and tell her that we, you know, landed okay, was in for the layover, and, and I start looking for the restroom signs. I'm going to go make a pit stop before I sort of get settled in for my two-hour, three-hour layover. And uh, so I see the restroom sign up there. I'm still talking on the phone to my wife, and I'm sort of just following the crowd. I get off the phone, and I just sort of follow uh, the guy in front of me, and I walk into what was the coolest bathroom complex at an airport I've ever seen in my entire life. So these, these doors just sort of parted to go in, and I went in there and there was like zen music playing, there was like, uh, uh, and there were restrooms there, but once you came out of the restrooms, there was like a buffet, and they were like offering you soft drinks, and there were like these cubicles where you could set up your computer and plug in and charge your stuff, and we're in. I thought to myself, this is the best airport like, this is absolutely amazing. I can't believe that this is all available. And I'm trying to sort of mark in my head where this place is, because when I come back on the return flight, I want to make sure I know how to get back to this place. This is the best layover experience I've ever had, you know? And so I'm, you know, I'm just really enjoying this, of the free food and the soft drinks and all that. And I'm walking out to go catch my flight, and as I walk out, I notice that the lettering on those sliding doors as I'm leaving does not say restrooms. It says, Admirals Club, right? <laughs> You familiar with these places in the airport? The Admiral's Club is a a special place for people who fly with American Airlines, who fly a ton of miles with them, or they pay for the ability to go use the Admiral's Club. But it is a place for them, uh, you know, for travelers to retreat when they're there for layovers from the unwashed masses like me, Um, you know, where they can go and have sort of their, you know, time to center between flights. And somehow I had wandered in there. I guess the reason they didn't catch me coming in is because I was right behind somebody who was supposed to be there, so they didn't realize I wasn't supposed to be there until I was leaving. But when I left, they let me know I wasn't supposed to be there, right? The lady at the front desk quickly disabused me of the idea that this was some sort of free thing for anybody who wants to come and participate in this. She explained to me, this is for American Airlines travelers with a lot of miles or who pay for this. And I said, well, I guess the joke's on you because I flew United. But um, (laughs) there is an interesting feeling, isn't there? As you walk out of some place where you were just told you don't belong. You know, no matter how... You know, no matter how you try to let it roll off, there's just something about walking out of some place where somebody has just told you you're not good enough to be there that stings a little bit, doesn't it? And so, you know, I'm talking about the Admiral's Club. I don't really care about those places in the airport. But, you know, I have been through some things in life where I got the impression from people that they thought I wasn't good enough for their group or I wasn't good enough for them or maybe I wasn't good enough for, I remember being laid off from a job and really walking out of that business thinking that what I was just told is I wasn't good enough for that job. And I'm talking to somebody in this room who is constantly, every day, battling the question, will I ever be good enough? Will I ever be good enough for people that I care about? Will I ever be good enough for the career that means something to me? Will I ever be good enough for the group of people around me? And the problem with this question, will I ever be good enough, is when it becomes sort of the little gray cloud that follows us around every day and sort of stays over our head, eventually we begin to develop this sort of internal disease that we would call insecurity. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a truly insecure person. Pegged out, completely insecure, but the symptoms, if you've been around a person like that, the symptoms are unmistakable, right? So when I go through these sort of features of the disease of insecurity, you're going to totally get it. You'll totally click because it'll it'll make sense to you. But a person who's really struggling with insecurity, first of all, tends to be hypersensitive to put-downs. Right, they tend to to be listening to everything everybody says for any potential slight, any potential zinger. They're you know they're always wondering what did you mean by what you said, what did they mean by that? They're always reading meanings into things, right? You're you know some time ago, especially when I was a really really little kid, um, a lot of people instead of having like cable or satellite on their TV, they had these things we called rabbit ears, right? The little things that stuck out at the top of the TV. Um, that would get your local signals. I mean, I recognize that as I'm talking about this, some of y'all don't even have any idea what I'm talking about, and I'm not even that old, you know? but. And by the way, when, when you had rabbit ears, it was very clear which television station you liked best. It was sort of like a way of setting priorities for local stations because there would be one station you would get in nearly perfectly, another one that would be so-so, and the last station would just be like, forget about it. So if you wanted to know what somebody's favorite television station was and their least favorite, if they had rabbit ears, it wasn't hard to tell, right? But, you know, about, I guess, the uh, mid-80s, I'm a child of the 80s, and about, about that time, you would drive past people's homes for whom the rabbit ears were not good enough and they had a satellite dish. Now, it wasn't difficult to tell because at this point in time, a satellite dish doesn't look like what it looks like now. It looks, you know, now it's like this little salad bowl on top of your house that you're trying to orient towards a satellite. Back then it was like this massive mesh thing that sat out in front of your house and took up your whole front yard, right? You wouldn't miss that thing. And it was like, for these people, getting local relevant channels, because that's what you get with the rabbit ears, you get the local relevant stuff. But for these people, getting the local relevant information is not good enough. They need signals from out of outer space, right? So they're listening to the weather report from Russia, whatever it is that they can pick up from off that satellite. So a person who really struggles with insecurity, They don't have the rabbit ears to pick up the local relevant stuff that really does matter because there are some put downs that really are aimed at us. There are some people that really are trying to make us feel bad about ourselves. But for these people, they start to develop a satellite dish and they're developing, they're they're picking up threats from outer space. Put downs from outer space, slights from outer space, zingers from outer space. What do they mean by what they said? They also tend to be suspicious of other people's motives. If you don't think that you're good enough, When somebody tries to do something for you, you're always going to wonder what is their ulterior motive. What is it that they're trying to get out of this? It'd be very difficult for somebody to genuinely love on you, to genuinely give to you, to genuinely help you, because you're always going to be wondering, well, why why, why are they doing this for me? What's their motive? The other thing is they tend to have their guard up continually. One of the saddest things about insecurity is that insecurity will keep you from being truly intimate with another person. Because if you don't believe you're good enough, then you're going to be very cautious about letting anybody else in so close that you will bond with them only for them to tell you that you're not good enough. That seems way too risky, so you'll keep that guard up. It'll keep you from being truly intimate with anybody. And then they tend to not believe they're capable of much. So you'll try to encourage them to take on a challenge or you'll try to encourage them to see that they're capable of doing something or you know, reaching the next level of something. But they'll always push back against you with the idea that, no, that's not really my thing. And truthfully, inside they're telling themselves, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't be able to do that. I've failed at other stuff, found out I wasn't good enough for other stuff, so what would make me think that I would be successful at this? But all of those are sort of like side symptoms. Can I tell you the one that is a dead giveaway? The dead giveaway for insecurity is that you can't absorb encouragement. You just can't. It's like it bounces off, right? That somebody tries to give you some encouragement about who you are, about some good aspect of you, or they try to share positives with you, and it's like there's some sort of force field around you that keeps those positives from sinking in. I was working on this sermon, and I'm gonna back up here a couple slides, because I was working on this sermon and I I was thinking to myself, well, This will be a great message for those people who struggle with insecurity. This will will be a great message for anybody who's dealing with that. And it was sort of like God tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Jonathan, so are you you convinced that you're not dealing with any of this? Well, yeah, I'm not an insecure person. And so God said, well, okay, well, let's look at the list then. How about being hypersensitive to put-downs? You never deal with that? Okay, maybe I deal with that some right? Maybe I've got, okay. And God says, well, well wait a minute. What about being suspicious of other people's motives? Jonathan, you, have, uh, you ever struggle with wondering if people have ulterior motives when they want to help you out? Uh, sometimes, right? Well, what about having your guard up and not letting people in because you're afraid you're not going to be good enough for them? All right, maybe I do that every once in a while. Well, what about not believing that you're capable of much? What about letting compliments roll off and letting when people try to encourage you, what about your inability to accept that? And suddenly I'm sitting there thinking, you know what, maybe I'm kind of an insecure person. Maybe this message is for me. Maybe it's not, maybe y'all are just the, the, the audience who's sort of listening to me work through my own problems, but I think I realize that I, maybe, I'm, maybe it's not pegged out for me, but I definitely have some pocket insecurity that I walk around with every day. And insecurity, will take away your ability to be effective in this world because it's like life on the ledge. It's like you're standing on this 20-story ledge. At your back is the warmth of the place that you feel that you don't belong. And in front of you is the 250-foot drop. And some of you, that picture is not hard at all for you to imagine because you live with it every day. I live with some of it. Maybe you live with some of it. Maybe you live with a lot of it. I wanna ask you this question as we start our talk off today. And that is, how would your life be different if you were totally secure in yourself? What would your marriage be like? How would that change? How would your parenting style be different? How would your work life be different? How would you feel about yourself if tomorrow you could be totally secure in yourself? Well, that's what we're gonna talk about. We said that this DNA of a champion series, we're gonna talk about seven statements that a person who believes in Christ can make about themselves that a non-believer really can't make. We said the reason that we're doing that is because not only does God want to have a relationship with us and, and change our eternal destiny, that's the main thing, but God also wants to give us a very productive and successful life on this planet. Even though this planet is a broken place and has a lot of things wrong with it, God wants to give believers an opportunity to live a life of purpose and blessing, and we're talking about that. So today we're gonna talk about the fact that the Bible says that I have value that you can't see, that you have value that I can't see, that ten, the tendency is for us to undervalue each other. So that's what we're going to talk about. In order to sort of lay the framework for that, we're going to go to the book of 2 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bible, if you have your online reading device, whatever it is that you, that you have with you that you can turn to 2 Corinthians, I would encourage you to do that. We're going to be in chapters 4 and 5 uh, for the majority of our time today. We're going to start off in chapter 5 with the Apostle Paul. Now, Just a little bit of background on the Apostle Paul. He's the guy who penned the majority of the New Testament. Um, He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's probably the theological scholar on the topics of faith, grace, and uh, the Christian life of all time. And the Apostle Paul is going to tell us about something that he used to do that he doesn't do anymore. He's going to talk to us about something that he stopped doing. Well, now, anytime somebody says something like that, my antenna go up. Because if somebody's smarter than me says, I used to do things this way and it didn't work for me, so now I do things this way. Man, immediately, I want to know about that because if I can learn that lesson from them, it's going to save me a lot of time. So here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, we have stopped doing this. We've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Hmm. Well, right off the bat, there's a couple things that we can, we can take out of that passage, right? First of all, we can take that there is a right way and a wrong way to evaluate people. So he said, we, we used to evaluate people this way. It didn't work for us. So now we're evaluating people differently. So there's a right way and a wrong way. But maybe more importantly, the Apostle Paul is saying that human beings usually evaluate people the wrong way. He said, we used to evaluate people from a human point of view. And that didn't work for us. Well, why is it so important for us to recognize that humans usually ev- evaluate other human beings wrong? Well, because some of you have lived through the pain of being devalued by someone else. It's not terribly common, but I've sat across from people in my office where they'll tell me that their parent, when they were growing up, now they're in to see me as adults because it's a marriage coaching thing, but one of them will tell me that when they were growing up, their parent called them worthless, or treated them as though they were worthless, called them names, treated them like an inconvenience. Somebody in this room, have had, you've had that experience, or you've been told that you're worthless by a spouse, or maybe you were made to feel worthless at your workplace. Regardless, it's important for us to recognize that when people try to evaluate us, they're pretty much almost always gonna get it wrong. Because the human way of evaluating people doesn't work, at least that's what the Apostle Paul says. So what is the right way and the wrong way to evaluate people? In order to talk about that, we need to go back to the Old Testament. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there's an awful lot of space devoted there to the history of the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. And also, if you're kind of familiar with that part of the Bible, you know that the first human king of the people of Israel was Saul. And Saul was the kind of guy that you would expect to be king. He was tall. He was good looking. He had an imposing presence. The Bible says that he stood head and shoulders above all the other men uh, in the kingdom of Israel. So that's a, that's a pretty big qualification. This guy uh, had uh, a, the power of presence when he walked in the room. Problem was, even though he looked the part of king, he didn't turn out to be a very good king. He had this problem with following directions. He just didn't do things the way that God told him to do it. And as a result, God ended his family's reign over the kingdom of Israel, and he picked a new guy to be king. And if you, if you know that part of the Bible, you know the new guy is King David, the best king Israel ever had. So now Samuel, he's the prophet. He's got to go anoint this new king. He goes to the house of Jesse, which is David's father. But you have to understand, David is kind of low on the totem pole. He's got a lot of older brothers. And in that day and age, the father's always going to trot out the oldest brother first. So it's time for Samuel to anoint the new king. Jesse brings out the oldest brother, and he looks like a king. He's tall, broad shoulders, handsome, looks like you know, the kind of guy that Saul was, and it looks like it would be an easy transition over to this guy as the king. And so Samuel's all ready to anoint this guy, and here's what God says to him. God says, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. It's interesting. Samuel is the prophet of God. So you would think that he would really have insight here. And yet God is saying, Samuel, I need to warn you about something. Because you're a human being, you're going to probably get this wrong. Because because you tend to evaluate people the way humans tend to evaluate people, you're probably going to mess this up. You're probably going to think that this guy, because he looks good, because he looks imposing, because it looks like he would be a good king, you're going to be all set to anoint this guy when that's not at all who I've picked. But look at how he follows this up. He says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge. So this is how we're talking about humans evaluate people. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How do we judge people? Well, we judge them based off of what we can perceive about them. It's not just necessarily about what we see, but it's how we've experienced this person, right? And the point that God is trying to make is that God has more information about me than you do you can just you just know how you see me you know how what you hear from me you know what you perceive about me but God knows my heart my heart's been broken over the past several years for finding out that pastors that I respected had really ugly secret lives some people even in the secular industry that I still thought really well of you know things come to light about them that are really sad. The thing is, what, what's hard about it and what creates this sort of tension in our spirit is going, how come I didn't see that? How come I didn't know that that was there? But the, the Bible is telling us why. Because none of us gets to see somebody's heart. All we get to see is what we perceive of them. All we get to see is what they show us of them. And yet the Bible says that God has an additional ability to tap into the real truth about a person because he can see their heart. Of course, we're not talking about the pump in your chest that's pushing blood through your system. We're talking about the seed of your emotions, your will, your intellect, all those things come together to form who you really are, and that's what we're talking about. Well, what can we take from this passage? First off, we can take that appearance is deceptive. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. You may have come into this room, you're still exploring God, you're still exploring this church thing, and yet you would be the first to tell me, yeah, Jonathan, you're exactly right, appearance is deceptive. Some of us, when we met somebody, we wrote them off, because something about them just didn't strike us right at first. But then the more we got to know them, the more we realized that they had a good heart and we accepted them and became connected with them. On the other side of it, maybe even more commonly, there are situations where you trusted somebody up front. Up front, you perceived them to be trustworthy. You perceived them to be somebody that you could count on, somebody that you could bond with, only to be betrayed by them later on. So we get it. Appearance is deceptive. But the other thing that this scripture tells us is that your heart will tell the truth about you. What's that old country song? Your cheating heart will tell on you, right? Your heart will tell on you. Let me show you why your heart tells the truth about you. The Bible says in Proverbs, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Well, now I get that phrase, determines the course of your life, because I was a mechanic in my early 20s, and I get that there is a piece of equipment in your car that determines the course of your car. What would that be? Steering wheel, right? If I can see the steering wheel, I know what direction the car is pointed in, right? So I have two bits of information. If I see your car sitting in the parking lot, I know where your car is right now, but if I can see the steering wheel, I know where your car is headed. Now this is the difference between being human and being God. I can only see where your car is parked, because I can't see your heart. But because God can see your heart, he understands where you're headed. He understands what direction you're headed in. It's not uncommon that I'll have couples come into my office to deal with infidelity, something that I deal with pretty often with couples coming in. And I have two extreme opposites that'll happen. The person who cheated will either say, I don't know how God could ever forgive me. My heart has really changed, but I don't know how God could ever forgive me. And, and they really feel like they're gonna be stuck in this period where nobody understands the turn of heart, the, the repentance that they're working so hard to live out. On the flip side, I'll have somebody who will say, well, I don't get why my spouse can't forgive me today. If God can forgive me today, why can't my spouse forgive me today? Or if God can restore me today, why can't my spouse restore me today? Both are wrong. Both are wrong. Because that person who is violated the trust of their spouse has to recognize the spouse can only see where the car is parked. And until there is a trend that that car is headed in a new direction, do we get the metaphor? Until there is a trend, until there is a track record, that car is headed in a new direction, there can't be restoration. There's got to be some reason to believe that things are going to be different. On the other hand, God can see what your spouse can't see. God can see where the steering wheel is pointed. That's why if there is true repentance your spouse may not get it yet or whatever situation you're in where you're trying to rebuild trust, that person with whom you're trying to rebuild trust, they may not be able to trust yet that there's a change of heart. But take heart in this. If you have that turnaround in your heart, if there really is repentance, just know that God knows today. God knows today because he can see where your heart is headed. So we need to guard our hearts because they determine the course of our life. God knows our heart. For some of you, that's a scary thing because I've I've met people, I've worked with people in my office where everybody around them thinks that they have a great life. Everybody around them thinks that they're connected to God and everything is wonderful. But deep down inside, they know that they're as far from God as could be where, and, and I've also met with people that others would think that they were not in a good place, but in their heart, they're as connected with God as they possibly can be. They're working very hard to get close to God. The truth about you is something that you know and something that God knows and really only you and God know. So that takes me to the passage that we're gonna focus on today. Each one of these seven statements has a passage that goes along with it. and We finally arrived at that place in 2 Corinthians chapter four where the apostle Paul says this, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves, well, if you were here week one of the series, you remember that we talked about treasure in clay jars or treasure in clay pots. In the ancient world, there were no deadbolt locks. There were no you know, security systems that would call the authorities if somebody breaks into your house. It was a relatively common thing. If somebody knew that you had possessions that were of any worth and you left, they might break into the house and try to steal them. So what people would do is they would have these stacks in their house of these clay pots. They were they were not of much worth. They were sort of disposable. Often they were sort of cracked and ugly. But they would be there to, to move things around, to store things in. They're just very utilitarian. And so what people would do is they would take their precious jewels or their money and they would put it inside these clay pots so that if a thief broke in, that would be the last place that they would think to look for it. Well, we don't hide stuff. clay pots anymore I tried to think of what would be an analog for this and the closest thing I could come up with is the cardboard box in our day and age we understand treasure in cardboard boxes because we order it online and it shows up on our doorstep we pull up to the pull up in the driveway and you see the box there on the doorstep and you do a little happy dance inside right it's so exciting whatever you ordered is there and you know what's in the box interestingly enough only you know what's in the box and the person who packed it knows what's in the box But the thing is, the box is not very important to you. You're not excited because of the cardboard box. Cardboard boxes are not hard to come by. And truth be told, it's pretty disposable, isn't it? I mean, you're gonna break into it. You're gonna take the stuff, whatever is inside of it out. By the way, there's nothing in this. I didn't want you to be disappointed later on. Be like, what has he got in the box? No, there's nothing in there. Um, But you break into it, you get the good stuff out, and then the box is something you toss in your garage, put in your recycling bin later and not worry about, right? How weird would it be to become obsessed with the box. You ordered something online that was important to you, shows up on your doorstep, and you become obsessed with the box, and you start to worry about how the box looks. Maybe your neighbors are gonna think that it's an ugly box, you know? You start to apologize to your neighbors. You go over to your neighbors and you knock on the door. and You know, I know this is an ugly box. I'm sorry for the fact that this was on my doorstep. It's such an eyesore, I feel really bad about it. You know, you start thinking about decorating it. Maybe you go buy some, some uh, gift wrap and the little bow you put on there. It makes you feel better about that box being on your doorstep. You really hate for it to be that ugly and for people to see it. Now you don't care about that because you know that inside the box is what's important, not, not the box itself. What the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us is something about life. He's saying, look, you have two realities in your life. You have the box and the treasure. Those are your two realities. Insecurity comes from an obsession with the box. It always comes from an obsession with the box. What does my spouse think about the box? What do my coworkers think about the box? What are the people in my social network, what do the people on Facebook think about the box? Can I tell you something, and I don't mean this meanly. We all have ugly boxes. Do you know the Bible says that all of us have gone our own way in life and done stupid things? Did you know we all have ugly boxes? Now, how weird would it be for me and my neighbors to go around and compare whose box is the ugliest? It does not matter. They're all ugly, all the boxes are ugly. The point is what's inside the box. So I asked you when you came in, what if, what if your life was totally secure? What if you felt totally secure in yourself? Well, security, on the other hand, comes from an obsession with the treasure. feel good about who I am as a person even though I'm a work in progress, even though God has got a ton of work to do on me, not because of the box, because I've accepted that the box is ugly, but I wanna be obsessed with what is inside the box. I wanna be obsessed with the treasure inside. That's what makes the difference between somebody who's insecure and somebody who's secure. Well, somebody might be sitting there today and say, "You know, Jonathan, uh, I'm 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 rocking on with your metaphor here, and you know, it's kind of helpful, I guess. The problem that I have is you keep talking about the treasure inside the box, and you know, that's really abstract. And I get that sitting here in church, it should just be landing on me like a ton of bricks. Oh yeah, I'm so valuable inside, but I'm not getting it. Well." I struggle with that myself, so let's do this. Let's do a little exercise, shall we? Let's do an exercise where we think about what we're worth, right? As a matter of fact, if you want to, you can take out a scrap of paper, or you can take out the notes thing on your phone, or whatever, because we're gonna do a little worksheet together. We're gonna figure out how much you're worth. And in the business world, or in the personal finances world, if somebody says, what are you worth? What they mean is, if we were to liquidate all your assets, what would be the dollar amount that we could put to them? So we're gonna do that right now. It's just sort of a mental exercise. And let's start with this. What about the promises of God? What dollar figure would you put on that? How much would you take for the promises of God? What would you sell it for? While you're thinking about that and writing down a number, how about your ability to pray, to talk to the God of the universe anytime that you want, about anything that you want, and to know that he's listening to you and that he is responding and that he is working things together for your good. How much would you take for that? What would be the dollar figure? And while you're working on that, how about your eternal destiny? How much would that be worth? Because you do realize someday, if, if we stick with the metaphor here, someday the box is going to die and they're going to put the box in another box. People are gonna come in a room like this one and they're gonna cry and they're gonna talk about how great a person you were. They're gonna go to the cemetery. They're gonna put the box in the ground and then they're gonna go back to the church and eat potato salad and drink sweet tea. (laughs) But if you ever come to Jonathan Hoover's funeral, I hope you understand that the real Jonathan won't be in the box. The real Jonathan is gonna be in the presence of Jesus Christ. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're a believer, you have that same future. How much would you take for that? What's the dollar figure? And if you've been a follower of God long enough to read the Bible and to see what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that I could keep going on and on and on and on and on. And if you're like me, you haven't been able to write down one single dollar figure. Because the truth is, if you could sell it, you wouldn't sell it. If you could trade it, you wouldn't trade it. They are the definition of priceless. That's what's inside the box. That's the treasure that Paul is saying is inside the box. You say, but Jonathan, I I have so many problems. Well, you may have problems, but what is inside you is priceless. But Jonathan, I have rough edges. Okay, fair enough. But what is inside you is priceless. But Jonathan, there are people that are frustrated with me and aggravated with me and I've let people down. Okay, but what is inside is priceless. Not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done for you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. I'm getting a little frustrated these days with the sort of Christian alarmist that's going around online and social media. Listen, I get that our culture is headed downhill. I, I totally get that. And we talked about that in the last series. But let me tell you something. We need to accept, as Christians in America, that being a Christian, we were never guaranteed an easy run of it. In America, we've had a very, uh, we've we've had a lot of freedom and we've had a lot of latitude to practice our faith, and that was hard fought for. But just so we're clear, God never guaranteed that being a Christian was going to be easy. But what He did guarantee was that we had His Holy Spirit living in each and every one of us. So what that means is that no matter what happens in this country, no matter what happens in politics, no matter what pressure is exerted on Christians, no matter what we go through in the future, the one thing that nobody can take away from you is that you carry within you the living God, and you're gonna be okay. Some of us need to put our arms around each other as Christians and say, we're gonna be okay. It's gonna be all right, because we've got God in our corner and on our side. That's what you're worth. Couple things we're gonna close out our talk with. And I'm getting ready to drive the analytical people in this room absolutely crazy. Cause see, on our new spring app, there's fill in the blanks. And these detail analytical people, I'm not one of them, I'm ADHD off the charts, but the folks in the room that are all about details and very ordered and logical, whenever they see a fill in the blank, there is a compulsion that it must be filled in, right? Um, And many of them have been in this room waiting for me to get to the fill in the blanks. I haven't even gotten to one of them yet. They're stressed out, right? And now what I'm going to do is gonna drive them even further crazy because I'm gonna rapid fire these things and they're not gonna be able to fill in the blanks fast enough. So if you're sitting next to one of those people and they start having a full on panic attack, you may wanna help them remember the words that go in the blanks. Tell them in true to nose, out through to mouth, It's gonna be all right, okay? What have we learned here today? First, we've learned that other people can't place a value on you. Doesn't matter how close they are to you. Doesn't matter whether you think that they have achieved more than you, they have more status than you. Nobody has the capacity to put a price tag on you. Nobody has the capacity to put a label on you. Only God knows what you're truly worth. And by the way, it's more than you think it is, and it's more than everybody around you thinks that it is. Secondly, God knows the truth about me. So even if people around me don't yet understand that my intentions are good and that my heart is good, and that I'm trying to work to get close to God, even if they don't get it, God gets it, and he understands where I'm at. Third, my heart is more important than my appearance. I have two sweet daughters. One of them started her freshman year this year in high school. I know, I know, I don't look that old. I I get it. Thank you, by the way, for saying that. one of the things that has been such a blessing to me as a dad, my, my, my daughters both got their mother's good looks, right? Somehow, in his mercy, God sort of umbrella shielded my daughters from all of my genetics when it comes to appearance and funneled my wife's good looks towards my daughters, which was a blessing. Um, but one of the things that is a great blessing to me as a dad is that my daughters are both more beautiful in their hearts than they are physically, even though they're incredibly beautiful physically. I want my heavenly father to be able to say that about his son, Jonathan. I want my heavenly father to be able to say that Jonathan has a more beautiful heart than the way that people perceive him, than the way that his appearance is, than the the way that people would evaluate him. That when God looks at me, he understands that my heart is oriented towards him. Finally, it's important for me to know that my value isn't based on my performance. It's based on my savior, right? Because here's... Here's the deal. Someday, unless Jesus comes first, someday they will have a service for me, you know? They'll lay me out in one of those boxes in a suit. It's kind of confusing. They've got a pillow in a suit. It's the only time you ever lay down on a pillow with a suit on. <laughs> um, they'll put me in one of those boxes, we'll have the funeral. And I'll stand before God. And if I was to stand before God on Jonathan Hoover's record, I would go straight to hell. You say, but Jonathan, you're a pastor. I swear to you, pastors get no special buy. We we, we will be judged more strictly than you will. The Bible says those who teach will be judged more strictly than those who learn. But you know why I have a future in heaven? It's not because of anything that Jonathan Hoover's done. It's because when God looks at me, he sees the record of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus died on the cross, that wasn't wasn't, uh, just a historical event. It wasn't just something that we would use to later create jewelry that we would wear around. Be, Be clear on this. Jesus spent those hours on that cross dying for me so that someday when God looked at me, he would see the record of Jesus Christ that was everything that I've ever done wrong has been paid for. So if God thinks that is my value, then that really is my value. I'm out of time but I want to close with a story from the gospels story in the book of Luke about a man named Zacchaeus how many of you grew up in Sunday school and you knew the song Zacchaeus was a wee little man yeah. Zacchaeus went to see Jesus but he couldn't see over the crowd so he climbed up in a tree and as Jesus passed that way Jesus stopped and asked Zacchaeus if he could come and eat at his house and this is what Zacchaeus did Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. Remember we said when people judge people, they get it wrong. He's going to the house of a notorious sinner. Now, why did they call him that? Zacchaeus was a, he was a tax collector. Now, That made him, in in, in Jewish terms, that made him the scum on the bottom of a sewer worker's boot, right? They absolutely hated tax collectors. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, you'll often see that it'll refer to sinners and tax collectors. Sinners and tax collectors, as if tax collectors were so bad that it would be offensive to sinners to lump them in with them, right? That the sinners would go, look, I'll cop to being a sinner, but don't lump me in with those tax collectors, you know? The reason it was a problem, Rome ruled the the world at the time. Rome understood that it probably wouldn't work very well to send in Roman guards to go collect taxes from the Jewish people. So what they did was they would find people in the Jewish community that would become a turncoat that would go collect taxes for Rome. And the reason it was a desirable thing or the, the hook that they put in it was, look, here's the amount you have to collect for Rome. You have to deliver this to Rome. But whatever else you have to collect to make it worth your while is totally fine. So they would, on the threat of imprisoning you if you didn't pay up, demand whatever they wanted and whatever they skimmed off the top was theirs. And keeping in mind, this was one of their people. Who's now doing this? I mean, it, it was wrong on so many levels. So it's reasonable that based off of their perception of Zacchaeus, he wasn't a guy that they felt very good about. But inside the house, Zacchaeus stands before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Well, this one's always been a tough one for me, to try to figure out. If he's that notorious of a sinner, why the turnaround? Why all of a sudden is he standing before God? And I, and I think he must have been legit on this. I think he must have been for real because the scriptures use him as an example. Why the turnaround? Why the 180? Can I give you a guess? It's just conjecture, I can't prove it. I can't prove it, but I, I think this is a pretty fair guess. I think Zacchaeus had been scraping money off the top, building that bank account for all those years, so that he could eventually buy his way into the Admirals Club. I'm serious. I think he thought if he had enough money, he would finally belong. If he could get enough of a bank account, he would belong with the beautiful people that had always told him he didn't belong. He could fit in. But the funny thing was, as soon as he fit in with the rich and the wealthy, his Jewish friends and family disowned him. So, as soon as he belonged with one group, he didn't belong with another group. Some of you have lived this. You work so hard to belong in one place, and the moment you finally belong there, you find out you don't belong someplace else. I think what changed Zacchaeus' heart was when he met the Son of God and he learned that God wanted to make him an adopted son, that he had a home in God's family that he belonged in God's family because there is that moment when you wake up and go, if I belong in God's family, then the rest of it doesn't really matter, does it? If I belong in God's family, it doesn't matter how much money people think I have or don't think I have. It doesn't matter whether people think my house is wonderful or they don't think it's wonderful. It doesn't matter how people evaluate how I live my life, you know, whether, whether they think that I belong with the beautiful people or not belong with the beautiful people. In the end, if I belong in God's family, all the rest of it's just moot, isn't it? I think that's why he said, look, the money now is just a way of making things right now. Whatever I have in my bank account now is just a way of making things right. But if I belong in God's family, then I don't have to be insecure anymore. I'm talking to somebody in this room, you've been insecure for majority of your life. You can walk out of here today and say, you know what, if I belong in God's family, then there's no reason for me to be insecure. I'm priceless. I'm absolutely priceless. Let's pray, Father, thank you for what you've done in our hearts today. Thank you for the treasure that is in those fragile clay pots. Help us not to get absorbed in the box, but help us to stay absorbed in the treasure that you've placed in each of our hearts. Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you'd say, you know what, Jonathan, uh, what you're talking about is something I need in my life. And to hear about a God that values me so much that he wants to have a relationship with me. That's, that's not something that I've really been open to yet, but now I'm open to it. Right in this moment, I'm open to it. Here's what I'd love to do with you. I'd love to say a really simple prayer. You can follow along silently in your head. You don't have to say this out loud, but if you do, it'll be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and rose again for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't save myself. Today, I receive your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. In your name. All right, look this way just for a moment. If you just prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor? Would you? would you go out to the guest services table let them know that you prayed with me or you can text prayed to 97000. We have a gift we wanna give you to get you started on your new journey with God. Thanks so much for being here this weekend. Next week, we continue on with DNA of a Champion.